Ephesians 6, 5 through 9. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. Masters, do the same to them, and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. The word of the Lord. Good morning, guys. Welcome to Trailhead. This morning, we're going to be talking about a specific kind of relationships. We've been talking about relationships a lot in Ephesians. We began by talking about how God has restored relationship with us through the work of Jesus, that, that we had alienated ourselves from God by our sin and our rebellion against him. But instead of staying alienated or getting angry or separating himself from, from us, he instead reached out to us, right, through the work of Jesus. He became one of us, so fully identified himself with us that, that he died for us, took our place in, in judgment and, and rose again to new life that we might be forgiven, right? So that's a key relationship. And in fact, the heart of what I believe is, is all of our relationships, right? Our relationship with God, if that's right, man, it frees us to have right relationships in every other sphere. And so we moved on from that. We talked about our relationships with, with our husbands and with our wives. Uh, we talked about a little bit about dating and, and things like that, what it looks like for us to honor God and find the best in those relationships. We then last week moved on and talked about what it was, what it meant to be a kid relating to our parents and what it meant to be an adult relating with our parents and what it meant to be a parent relating with our kids. And those relationships and how the gospel speaks into those things. This week, we're going to talk about how the gospel speaks into your work relationships. How does it speak into your office? Does the gospel have any impact on that place, right? Uh, Does it make any sense of what we do to make a living or what we do to be productive? Not everyone works for a paycheck. We all work, right? Everybody has to work. Everybody has to be productive. Not everybody has to do it for a paycheck. Um, So how does the gospel speak into that? So this isn't really surprising that this is going to be an important topic to us because work is actually part of the human job description. I don't know if you've ever really thought about that, but just by being human, you have a job description. God created you for a purpose, right? And your purpose was primarily to relate to him and give him the glory as the giver of life, the one who created you in his image. Adam and Eve were given the responsibility of relating with God. They were also given the responsibility of loving each other, right? They were given a spouse to love. They were given a family to start and ultimately children to love. And they were given a work to do. Guys, some of you, this is really bad news, okay? When you, when, when you die and you go on to the next phase of, of living life with God, work is not a thing of the past, right? You don't just get your own personal cloud with a harp and, and sit around and, and watch NCAA basketball day, right? That's not, that's not what heaven is. Um, for some of you, that may sound like heaven, but um, we were actually created to be productive, right? Adam and Eve were given the gift of a garden. And some of you are like, I hate gardening. That's fine. But if you think about what a garden is, a garden is, is where God took something that was wild and cultivated it, created something out of it. It was culture, God gave mankind the gift of culture and told him, you are to be a culture keeper and a culture maker. It's a cultural mandate of scripture. It is to be productive, creative, engaged 
we're created in the image of God and we follow. We're in the, God is a creative God. He's a working God. He's a productive God. So it's wired in us to, to be productive and, and to engage and to expand culture. That's part of what God has asked us to do. And that's why as a church, we're, we're pro-business and pro-science and, and pro-productivity because that is, in fact, part of how we were wired, right? So I want to talk about the difficult aspect of how this actually translates to your job because for some of you, let's just be honest, you don't like your job, right? You really don't like it. And, and, and you kind of avoid working there as much as you can. You're there working, not working. You know what I'm saying? Like, like some of you... You just hate your job, at least at times, right? Everybody hates their job sometimes. Some of you hate it a lot more than just sometimes, right? Maybe you're underpaid, right? And so you're, you're concerned because you, you don't get enough money. And, and that's a real concern. Obviously, we work um, to pay the bills, and if we're underpaid, that is a real issue. Um, and you think that the solution would be, well, if I just got paid more, then I would like my job more. But the reality is that's not true, um, We'll talk about this. Money is actually the least most effective motivator for productive work. Uh, It's a necessary part of it, but it doesn't solve the problem, right? The problem isn't the work itself. I mean, so here's the deal. Maybe you're bored. Maybe you're disinterested. Maybe you're feeling a lack of purpose and disconnection with your workplace. We're going to talk about how the gospel speaks into that. Others of you, you're kind of on the flip side. You love your job. You love your job and and maybe even love it too much, right? Maybe, Maybe you've... Um, taking a job where um, you kind of get your identity from it. You like the, the way people look at you when they know what you do for a living. Or you like the feeling you get about yourself when you get to operate well in your job. In other words, you're, you're making it an identity issue. It's not just what you do, it's who you are. And, and you're looking for your job to justify your existence. You're looking for your job to give you an ultimate sense of satisfaction. You're looking to your job to give you that ultimate sense of significance or accomplishment or manhood or, or, or womanhood or whatever it is. Um, here's the deal. Those are both ways to ultimately um, feel incredibly disappointed in the long term and frustrated with our work. So how do we glorify God with our work? Well, the bottom line is this. If we're, if we're going to glorify God, the one who, who created us for work, as, and, and gave us work as a gift, if we're, if we're going to glorify God in our work and get joy out of work, we're going to have to approach it in the right way, right? We're going to have to stop approaching it like slaves. Some of us come to our work as if it were a master, a taskmaster, something we just have to do because we have to get to the money on the other side. And so we do it grudgingly, we do it frustratingly, we do it, we do it as little as possible to get paid as much as we can, right? I mean, we just, we're, we're disengaged. Others of you... Um, you need to stop approaching your work as if it were God. As if it could do for you what only God can do. As if it could make you feel about yourself the way only God can ultimately make you feel through his affirmation and declarations over you. We need to stop looking at, at, at our work as a master. We need to stop looking at our work as, as God. And we need to start looking at our work as worship. If we are really going to get the most joy out of the gift of work, We're going to have to make work worship. And that's kind of where we're going in in this passage this morning. What does it mean for us to make work worship so that we can experience real joy, real fulfillment, even in jobs that that don't necessarily or intrinsically give it to us? All right, so our passage, 
obviously our passage deals with slavery. Um, it starts, I mean, you guys, it's pretty obvious, right there in verse 5, slaves, obey your earthly masters. Verse 9, masters, do the same to them. Stop threatening knowing that you have a master, and it's the same master they've got, right? So, so the passage deals with slavery. So I want to talk about this for a moment, talk about what the Bible has to say about this, and, and let's ask the question, does it even relate to us? I mean, that's, sometimes we just assume, but does this passage, in fact, speak to us since we are not in that context and we are not um, dealing with the issues of slavery? I think it does, but let's deal, first of all, with the slavery issue. First of all, Ephesus was a community that would have dealt with slavery. About one-third of the total population of Ephesus would have been slaves. It was an integral part of their economy and of their culture. It was interwoven. And in fact, in most of the ancient world, slavery was widely practiced and was a common part of most societies. If you look in antiquity, um, slavery has been, pretty much as far back as you can see, an integral part of most social structures. Now, the Bible, while it describes that, does not endorse that. You can't find anywhere in Scripture where it endorses slavery. It just speaks into it. In other words, Paul is saying... I know this is a social structure, and I know that you guys are operating within it. So let me tell you how the gospel empowers you to be a slave or to be a master in a totally different way than you were before. So he's going to talk about how the gospel transforms your experience in the structure without necessarily endorsing that structure. And in fact, when you look back at the historical movement of Christianity after the first century, what you find is that as Christianity moves out, slavery dies. The the world is significantly transformed, where for the most of the world, as Christianity moves out, slavery dies. And there's a good reason for that. The Bible, the gospel, has a radical view of humanity. And that it says very clearly that, that when two people believe in Christ, they're brothers in Christ. They have the same master. They stand on the same footing. They are not intrinsically superior or inferior. And when you approach humanity in that perspective, it levels the playing field, right? And we find that Paul in Scripture gives tremendous honor to slaves. I mean, he's directly addressing slaves, which honors them. He, he, He addresses them first and masters second. He sees them as just as worthy of his instruction and investment. There, there's a whole book in the Bible called Philemon that is, in fact, a letter written by Paul on behalf of a slave, an escaped slave named Onesimus. And, and Paul basically treats Onesimus, this escaped slave, as if he were his own son. And he says to the master, Philemon, you can accept him back. In fact, you should accept him back. Just make sure you treat him just like you would treat me, because we're equals. It's a radical message uh, that, that, that undermined the social pinnings that ultimately led um, to, the, to the development and sustaining of slavery. Now, slavery in the ancient times was a little bit different than most modern slavery. Most modern slavery is um, probably, probably about the most dehumanizing and brutal form of slavery that we can imagine. Um, most people who are slaves today or um, in the American history, we'll go there, were, were forced, indentured, in which they basically lost all human rights. The slaves became human property. And in becoming human property, lost all rights to any kind of personal dignity, personal right, uh, everything that was about the slave, um, since they were considered subhuman, ultimately belonged to the owner. 
in ancient civilizations, I'm not saying that, that it wasn't a brutal system. At times it was. But it was a system that um, had a little bit more humanity to it than most of the modern expressions we see. Um, most people that got into slavery um, got into it by social circumstances. There were slaves, obviously, who became slaves because maybe their region was conquered in a war and, and there were prisoners led away. There were other slaves who became slaves because their family owed a debt or they owed a debt. And so they would become a slave. Their slavery was limited in time. Um, so the amount of time they'd be in slavery was specific. And in extent, in other words, everything that the owner owned wasn't everything about the person. They owned their productivity for a period of time in order to pay back their debt. The person who became a slave actually joined the family. It's part of the, the ancient cultural structure is that um, a person who, who was the head of the home, like I mentioned um, Philemon. Philemon would have owned a very large home and a large compound. And on that, basically his home was his, his immediate family and all of their servants. They were actually considered part of the family. Not with all the same equal rights, but they were carried the same equal dignity. And sometimes slaves would get to the end of their indentureship and actually choose to extend their slavery because they looked at all the options they had in life and were like, I like it here. I like the way I'm treated. I like the, the, the work. I like the way I'm valued. And my life here is better than it would be outside. And they actually became bond slaves. They were willing slaves. They, and the way they would do that is, is a lot of customs. They would take their earlobe and actually nail it to the doorpost right? There you go. The birth of earrings, right? Earrings were a sign of, of indentured servitude. It was basically them saying, I have willingly um, indentured myself, tied myself to this family, okay? And so slavery was fundamentally different. Now, again, the Bible doesn't endorse it, but it does speak into it. So do the principles of this passage relate to us who are not slaves? We operate in a world of freedom. And I would say that the text, in fact, actually demands it. If you take a look at verse Eight, it says this, knowing whatever good anyone does in service, he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is slave or free. In other words, what he's saying here is that the principles that I am espousing here are universal in nature, whether you're slave or free. The things that I'm talking about here relate to you, even if you don't um, come to the table as a slave. So let's take a look at the principles that we see in this passage and see how they speak to us as modern people um, and relate to our job places. How do we make work worship? Well, I think the first thing we need to do is that we need to learn how to work with integrity. We need to learn how to work with integrity. Verse 5 says this, slaves obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling and with a sincere heart. Now, he's not calling them to, to um, abject fear of those who have power over them. What he's saying is you need to come, this is a way of saying, coming with deep respect. You need to come um, willing, with a sincere heart. Not a, not a reluctant heart, a sincere heart, as you would to Christ. Jo- dropping down to verse 7, rendering service with a good will. Rendering service with a good will as you would to the Lord and not just to man. All right, the principle here is that we need to approach our work with integrity. For some of you, what that means is this. You actually need to do some work, okay? I mean, that's just the bottom line. You, you kind of need to do some work, right? We have, uh, there's this, this phrase that has been um, in circulation, I don't know, probably about five or six years 
but it's a great phrase because it's, it's a modern problem. It's called weisure. You ever heard of this? Right? It's the combination of work and leisure. And that's why, like, if I were to, you know, sneak up behind you before you're able to click the boss button on the bracket while you're at work, you're going to have two things open. One's a spreadsheet where you're working, and the other is, is the, you know, the latest game information, right? And you're flipping back and forth. For some of you, it's Facebook or Twitter, right? If we were to add up the number of minutes over your workday that you are investing into Twitter and compare it to what you're investing into your spreadsheet, probably a dead tie, maybe Facebook wins, right? Let's just be honest. A lot of you, you're, you're in this realm of, of, of weisure where you're not quite resting, so you're, you're working when you're supposed to be resting, and you're kind of resting when you're supposed to be working, and it just bleeds into all of life, and we don't work well, and we don't rest well. Some of us, we need to have a little bit more integrity with our work. We need to give an honest day's labor to our employers, Some of you are cheating your bosses. Some of you are cheating your workplaces. You're like, oh, come on, man. I do as much work as anybody else. I'm not asking you to compare yourself to everybody else. I'm saying work with integrity. That's something that honestly is lacking from our culture today, isn't it? I mean, the cultural norm today, when you see the cultural hero, the cultural hero is somebody who does as little work as possible and gets paid as much as possible for it. For a lot of people, that's their dream job, which sounds like suicide to me. That's absolutely horrible. But the reality is that that's what a lot of people think is, is going to give them the ultimate fulfillment. That, that's our cultural view of, of what a great job is. It's really not. And, and so a lot of us, we're, we're honestly cheating our employers. And you justify it because you're not really doing what you love. You justify it by saying, Steve, you don't, you don't get my job, man. It's a stupid job. I'm amazed they pay me to do this stuff, but they do, and I hate it, and, and I don't really, it doesn't matter if I get my work done, it doesn't matter how quick I get it done, and, and, or, or maybe I get, you know, I can get it done so quickly, or, or, you know. The result is that you end up giving 100% effort over the course of the week if you add up all five days, right? You give like, like 15% on Monday. And, and 20% on Tuesday, and 35% on Wednesday, and then maybe 25% on Thursday, and then maybe 5% on Friday, right? And you add it all up, you give 100%, right? One day's work over the course of five days. That's the reality of today's workplace, tremendously low productivity. Um, or the flip side would be um, complete overinvestment and exhaustion so that we're spending way, many, way more hours with, with a way lower return, um, we need an honest day's labor if we're going to work with integrity. So here's the deal. I, I, we've all worked jobs we hated, right? Um, I've worked some pretty nasty jobs, right? I think one that I hated, hated, hated. I was a barbecue bottler. Barbecue sauce bottler, right? That's what I did. It was a summer job. I was a teacher. I needed a job in the summer. And, and, uh, and so I bottled barbecue sauce, which sounds wonderful. It wasn't. It stank. It was hot. It was nasty. And, and I worked with people that were just incredibly unpleasant. And so, um, you know, that wasn't my identity. You know, it wasn't like I was, hey, look at me. I'm a barbecue. I can't even say it. I'm a barbecue bottler, right? That's not, that wasn't my identity. It wasn't something that I loved to do. Um, but that doesn't mean that, that, that I was off the hook for not doing it well. Here's the deal. A lot of us give ourselves an out because we don't see what we do as an expression of who we are. 
what I'm doing doesn't really connect with me. It doesn't really have any meaning to me. So I'm kind of off the hook to really invest myself into it. I see that as an excuse to cheat myself from full effort into it. And the problem is when we do that, we're kind of missing the point. Because, because the issue here is not the purpose of your work, but the integrity of your work. Integrity is an incredibly wonderful word. Right? A lot of times when we talk about somebody having integrity, what we think is, okay, that's somebody who tells the truth. But integrity means wholeness. It means soundness. It means honesty for sure, but it means something way beyond honesty. It means something that is not just honest, but true and whole. Right? You can talk about the integrity of a ship. When you talk about the integrity of a ship, what you're talking about is, is that it is just built well. It is sound. It holds up under normal and extreme pressure. It does what it is designed to do. We want lives of integrity, you guys. This isn't something onerous. This isn't like God saying, man, you better tell the truth or I'm going to punish you. What he's saying is I designed you for integrity. I designed you for this kind of wholeness. It actually takes you where you want to go. It actually gives you the kind of life you're trying to achieve. It feels good. It's rewarding. We're being called to approach our work with with that kind of wholeness, right? The problem is some of you think you just can't have that wholeness in your work because when you approach your work, you lack joy. Because you think there's something in your job that's robbing you of joy or not giving you joy. You think the issue is in your work instead of in you. Well, here's the deal, you guys. It isn't the nature of your work that gives it purpose and dignity. It's the manner in which you do it. Did you catch that? It is not the nature of your work that gives it purpose and dignity. It is the manner in which you do it. As I was preparing for the sermon, um, Ellen, one of the people on our team, read through my quotes and and sent me another great quote that didn't make it into the bulletin, but I decided to incorporate it into the sermon. Uh, I'm going to throw it up. This is from Martin Luther King Jr., and he said this. If a man is called to be a street sweeper, he should sweep streets even as Michelangelo painted or Beethoven composed music or Shakespeare wrote poetry. He should sweep streets so well that all the hosts of heaven and earth will pause to say, here lived a great street sweeper who did his job well. It's not the nature of the work that gives it its purpose and its dignity. It's the manner in which we do it. To work with a sincere heart, rendering service with, with goodwill, means that we are to invest ourselves in our work. When the Scripture says, render it with goodwill, when it says, do it with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, what, what the Scripture is saying is that for us to make work worship, we need to engage it seriously. We need to stop focusing on, on what what. It doesn't give us and start asking, what is God asking us to give and to bring to the table and to invest? We need to work with integrity, which means that we're going to have to learn how to work from the right motives. If we're going to work with integrity, we need to work um, from the right motives. In verse 8, Paul says this. In verse 7, he said, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Verse 8, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is slave or free. Here's the deal. All work is done with hope of reward, right? Very few people go take a job with no hope for reward, right? Uh, That's not normal. 
Let me just go do something, and I hope I don't and nobody gets anything out of it, right? That doesn't make any sense. There's always a reward that motivates the productivity, the work. We hope to get something out of it. And what this verse is telling us is that we need to work with the right rewards for the right things. If you think about what, it, what employment is, employment is essentially an exchange, isn't it? Your time, your talent, your productivity, your creativity for a reward, right? You are, you are bringing something to the table the employer needs because you're looking to get something back from the employer that you need. And the work you do is tied to its reward. The greater the reward, the greater your motivation, the greater your engagement. Now, you guys, money is a huge motivator. But we, we need to recognize the cultural lie. It is not the ultimate motivator. And we know this. We know this. In fact, studies have been done to show this. If, if somebody's doing a job and they're being paid adequately for that job, I'm not saying they're underpaid, but they're actually being paid adequately for that job, giving them more money does not make them more productive. Giving them more money does not give them more job satisfaction. Giving them more money does not help them engage the task in any greater degree. It just gives them more money. Money is a reward, and it's a necessary reward for this kind of employment, but it is not the greatest motivator. And in fact, any work that's done only for money will become the least enjoyable work you ever do. It'll be the least rewarding kind of work you can engage in. And most of us eventually get to a point where we we would admit, we would say, I would be willing to work for less money if I could work in a way that I felt more engaged and rewarded in other ways. We would be willing to take a pay cut, most of us, if we could end up in a job that was more personally rewarding in key ways. Because while money is a huge motivator and a huge reward, it is not the primary or the most satisfying, right? But here's the deal, you guys. A lot of people then jump onto the job hopping circuit. Okay, they leave there. They're like, okay, money's not the best motivator. I need to find a job that's going to fulfill me. So they keep going from job to job to job, trying to find a job that will fulfill them. And it does for a little while, but eventually they realize that there's something wrong with the job or something wrong with the system, right? You got wonderful people who have chosen low-paying jobs, <laughs> teachers, social workers. I can go on. I mean, these are people that ultimately have, have invested time and energy and into fields that they know they're, they're not going to be paid as well as other fields. But they do it because what they want to get out of it ultimately is, is more rewarding than the money they can earn. You know what happens to most people that enter those fields purely for the personal reward of those fields? They become bitter. They get burnt out because they find that ultimately their job can't fulfill them in a way they're looking for their job to fulfill them. It can't give them what they're looking for. And so they either become bitter or they become job hoppers where they're just looking, okay, if I can just find a job that will give me this, if I can just find a job that will do this, if I can just find a job, and, they be, and then they're constantly thinking the problem is out there instead of ever realizing that the problem is in here, that the solution isn't for working for more money or working for more personal fulfillment. The solution ultimately is working for the right reward. So what's the right reward? If it's not money and it's not personal fulfillment, those are all good rewards, they're necessary rewards, what's the right reward? Well, bottom line is it's God's glory. Very spiritual, churchy answer. I'll explain a little bit, okay? We should be working for God's glory. That's ultimately why we were created. That's the ultimate purpose of mankind, to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. We were created to, to live 
uh, imaging God and glorifying God. We were to, to love one another and glorify God in the gift of community. We were to be productive and create, to maintain and create culture and glorify God by, by imaging his creative nature, all the while giving glory to the one who is ultimately glorious, all the while pointing back to the one who is the, the ultimate first of all things that are good and beautiful and worthwhile. We are to work for God's glory, but that's a really big and ambitious concept. Let's just be honest. It's really hard to say, I live for the glory of God, or I work for the glory of God. It's such a big concept. So I want to give you a very simple tip, a very simple thing that I think we can do that will help us do that. And that's this, that, that if we're going to, to work for the glory of God, our primary motivation in work needs to be gratitude. You need to bring gratitude to your job. And I'm not talking about gratitude for your job. I'm talking about gratitude for the one who gave you your job. I'm talking about gratitude for the one who created you with the ability to have a job. The one who gave you the ability to breathe and act and work and create. I'm talking about gratitude to God. I mean, what if, what if our primary motivation in going to work wasn't to pay our debts? What if our primary motivation was because we owed a debt we couldn't pay? What if our primary motivation in going to work was not to pay back our debtors, our debtors but, but to honor the God who worked for us and paid a debt we couldn't pay on our own? What if we recognize that we all come to the table owing God a debt that he doesn't ask us to pay back because we can't? And so in the end, what we really owe him is a debt of gratitude. A debt that says, God, you did for me what I could never do for myself. I mean, think about it. We rebelled against God. We sinned against God, but he didn't abandon us. He didn't reject us. Instead, he became one of us. He so fully identified with us that he, that he put on flesh. He lived the life we des- that we should have lived, that, that we didn't. The life of perfect obedience and perfect holiness and perfect righteousness. And then he so fully identified with our sin that even though he never sinned, he died a sinner's death. Even though he never rebelled against God, he suffered the, the righteous outpouring of God's wrath against cosmic treason that we deserved. He died in my place as my substitute, fully satisfying the righteous judge of the universe in regard to my sin, being buried and then rising again to new life, showing that not only was my debt forgiven, but now a new life has been extended to me. He didn't rise just for himself. He rose also for me. Our greatest debt in the universe has been paid. The greatest gift in the universe has already been given to us. What if we saw our work as a way to simply say thank you to God. Not because the work itself is meaningful. Not because the work itself is going to change the world. But because the God who gave us that work is meaningful and changed the world. And it's our way of saying to God, thank you. You've given me the ability to work. You've given me the ability to be productive. And I want to just simply say, I honor you with it. I can't pay you back with it, but I can honor you with it. You guys, when you think about it, The greatest reward in the universe is relationship with God. The greatest reward in the universe is relationship because God's a relational God and he created us to enjoy a relationship. I mean, think about it. How many people on their deathbed say, bring me my 401k. I want to see the numbers. How many people on their deathbed say, bring me my trophies. Bring me my accolades. Bring me my medals. Bring me the videotapes of of people saying good things about... What do they say? They say, bring me my family. 
Bring me the people I love and who love me. Because the greatest reward is relationship. And, and, and what motivates us to the reward of relationship ultimately is self-giving for the purpose of bringing the other person joy. The intrinsic reward comes from learning to lay down our lives for the benefit of others. How do you love somebody well? You learn to live with them in such a way, you learn to relate with them in such a way that you bring them joy. Purely for the fact that it gives you joy to see them delight. As parents, we know this. When our our marriages are clicking and, and healthy, we know this. That ultimately the greatest joy in relationship comes from giving someone else joy. What if we saw our work as a way to simply give God joy? To say to him, I don't see a whole lot of meaning in what I'm doing right now, but you're the one that gave it to me, so I'm going to do it for your glory. I'm going to do it to say thank you to you. I'm going to do it as an offering of gratitude to you. Completely transform the way we approach our work. Completely transform the way we approach the relationships that we have every day. I talked to a young woman this week. You know what her job is? To sit in a chair. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. No, (laughs) my job really is to sit in a chair. Who do you talk to? Nobody. What do you do? A lot of nothing. But this is a, they, they fill this position. This is the position they gave me. They told me I have to sit here and, and basically, you know, she gets a task every once in a while. I'm like, how do you glorify God with that? <laughs> do nothing to the glory of God, right? No, I mean, what you do is you, you look around and, and you say, God, what are you doing here that I can partner with you with? Who can I get to know? Who can I serve? How can I, I mean, this is a radical idea for some of you. How can I actually do something that's not on my job description? Some of you are like, dude, I'm union, never do that. (laughs) All right, if you're union, great. Um, Do your union stuff to the glory of God, right? But, but, But think about how you can go above and beyond, right? in a way that doesn't make you threatening to your union friends, right? And just, just figure out how you can love people or serve people or encourage people or do something, right? How will that change that empty, meaningless job to something that actually is filled with meaning? Looking around and basically saying, God, what are you doing here and how do I partner with you in it? How do I glorify you by simply saying thank you with what you've given me? Now, if you're at a dead-end job and it's horrible and all the rest of that, glorify God in it and look for another job. You're not a slave. We have the freedom to move in jobs, God has given us a lot of freedom and and, and lateral movement in in our culture. It's a huge gift, right? So I'm not saying we shouldn't find better jobs or look for different jobs. Just don't think that by changing jobs, it's going to solve the problems you're bringing with you. Changing the job doesn't change you. And it's not going to give you ultimate satisfaction. You need to become the person who worships God through gratitude in your job now. And as you change, what you're going to find is that you're going to better appreciate the values that your new job brings if God allows you to. And this leads us to the final principle, you guys, that our work needs to be done as obedience. Not just out of gratitude, but our work needs to be done as obedience. When when you look through this text, man, I mean, it's just all over the place. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling and a sincere heart, as you would Christ. What he's saying there is, is Christ is your real boss, right? Not by way of eye service, as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ. You're not doing it for your boss. You're not doing it for your manager. You're not doing it for that inept person that got promoted over you. You're a servant of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. 
It's not the will of your employer. It's the will of God. When, when God has given you that job, as long as it's not sin and, and they've asked you to do a task, you are doing the will of God by doing that task for God as your boss. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, the true master, the true boss, whether he's slave or free. I mean, it's just clear that, that when we approach this right, it becomes an issue of obedience and our worship is an expression of our love saying, I want to show my gratitude and I want to show my allegiance. I want to honor you by following you. There's a parallel passage in Colossians chapter 3. Colossians is a, is a sister letter to the book of Ephesians. And, he, and Paul addresses a lot of the same topics. And we call it a parallel passage because he's dealing with the same theme, but he's speaking to a different city, a different audience, and he says it a little bit differently. And this is the way he says it there. Let's go ahead and put that up there. It says this, whatever you do, work heartily. In other words, work with all your strength, with all your heart, with, with all your talent and creativity. Work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Don't think that you're just working for the people who pay you. Knowing that from the Lord, you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You're, you have a reward that's way greater than your paycheck. It's ultimately a relationship with God because you are serving the Lord Christ. You are serving the Lord Christ. Even your dead-end menial job, even your meaningless tasks, even the stuff nobody sees and nobody notices, God sees. God notices. When we do this, we turn all of our work into an issue of obedience. In the end, every worker has a boss, right? Every worker has a boss. We all have somebody over us who tells us what our job description is and what we're supposed to do with it, right? And you're like, not me, Steve. I'm self-employed. You haven't been self-employed very long yet if that's really your attitude, right? Anybody who's started a business or has become self-employed knows they don't have one boss. They've got a bunch of them, right? It's called the clients or the customers or the contractors, right? You have a lot of people who have high expectations that you have to meet. Everybody ultimately works for a boss. Maybe you set your own schedule, but you don't work for yourself, right? That, that, that's the bottom of, uh, that's how it works. What if we saw God as our ultimate boss? What if in all these situations we approached our work and ultimately saw God as the ultimate boss, the one who provided us with life and breath and talent, also provided us with our jobs. And we saw the fulfillment of that job as gratitude, and obedience, and an act of worship. We don't do it because we want to earn a reward from God. We do it because we've already received a reward from God. We don't do it because we want to earn the favor of God. We do it because we already have the favor of God earned for us in Christ. We don't offer it up with the hope that somehow we're going to get a greater share of God's blessing. We do it because we realize we already have all of God's blessing in Christ. And this is our way of simply saying thank you to God in it. And you guys, this is what I want you to catch. The real blessing comes in the integrity that God shapes in your heart as you become the person he's created you to be. A good chunk of the reward isn't extrinsic to who you are. It is intrinsic to your relationship with Christ. And as you come to engage your work as worship, God will change you. Even if he doesn't change your work. 
And as he changes you, you will experience greater joy, greater fulfillment, greater purpose than any job can ever give you. And you will bring joy to your work instead of looking to your work to give you joy. It will free you to work with joy, even in a job that doesn't intrinsically give it. It will free you to find pleasure in what you produce without trying to find your ultimate meaning in it. The ultimate reward will not be money or the kudos that you receive. Those are good things. But your ultimate reward will, in fact, be a deeper, more powerful experience of your relationship with God, which is the greatest reward we can ever have anyway. So the bottom line is this, you guys. Much of the Christian life is about obedience. And I want to transition here and talk about obedience for a moment um, because I want to talk about our event, our, our baptism. We're called Christ followers. I love that phrase um, because we follow Christ. What, what that essentially means is that he's the boss of me, right? Um, when I say I'm a Christ follower, what it means is that he gets to lead. And when he leads, I follow, right? That's when you look at the Gospels, Jesus is always walking or, or sailing or walking. He's doing something, right? Walking on water. People just have to kind of follow him where he goes. That's the way he works. He knows what he's up to. He knows where he's going. And he just calls us to obey and to follow. And because he is the God he is, and he's demonstrated our, his heart to us in the way that he has, we trust him to lead. We, we, we basically trust that he's going to tell a better story for our lives than we would tell for ourselves. And so we submit ourselves to him. It doesn't always make sense, and it doesn't always, isn't always easy, but, but we trust that, that he's the one who, who knows where he's going, and we want to follow. And today, I want to give some of you a unique opportunity to obey Jesus. If you're a follower of Jesus, you can get baptized today. You're like, Steve, what does that mean? Like, I can join a class? No, not join a class. You don't need a class. You'd be baptized. If you're a follower of Jesus and you haven't been baptized, this is an issue of obedience. Jesus basically, um, one of the last commands he gave to his disciples is, is what we call the Great Commission. And he took his disciples aside. He took them up to a mountain and basically said, I want you to go into all the world. Or as you're going into all the world, I want you to make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So, so basically the commission is this, go out and tell people about who I am and what I've done so that you can call them to faith in me. And, and when they believe in me, they'll become my disciples. They'll become my followers. And as they become Christ followers, when they've, when they've believed the gospel, dunk them, <laughs> baptize them. The Greek word baptizo literally means to immerse, right? That's why we practice baptism by immersion. It's a beautiful symbol of our faith. I mean, think about it. If I take you and dunk you and hold you under long enough, what's going to happen? You're going to die, okay? A lot of power there. I haven't done that yet. I don't plan to. You're safe with me. I'm not going to kill you. But it is a beautiful symbol because when you are dunked, when you are immersed, it is a symbolic entry into the death of Christ. What that symbolizes is the fact that you've died to who you used to be outside of Christ. And you're entering into Christ's death for you, that he died in your place as your substitute so that he could pay your penalty. And when you're raised up out of the water, it's symbolic of resurrection, that you have been raised together with Christ, that his resurrection was not just for himself, but for you to give you a new name, a new identity, a new nature, and a new future. Baptism is a huge, beautiful celebration, and it is a great honor 
to be able to be baptized into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it's only possible because of the work of Christ. And, and so Jesus basically said, this is what I want you to do, right? I want you to be baptized. And when we look through Scripture, what we see is that that's kind of the pattern. People come to faith and they're, they're baptized. When? When they believe. I mean, it's kind of crazy. You got one guy riding along on a chariot and he's like, I believe this stuff. Look, there's a pond. Let's, let's do it, right? They jump out right there on the side of the road. There's no class. There's no special knowledge. The only gateway is faith. For those who have believed Jesus, that's the only requirement to be baptized. And, and often the way God kind of laid, laid it out is that it's basically like, okay, now you believe in me, obey. Here's the first act of obedience. You want to follow me? Go get dunked. Go get baptized. It's, it's, it's an act of, of submission. A tremendous honor. So, so here's the deal, you guys. I am extending to you today, if you are a follower of Jesus and you have not been baptized, I'm extending to you this morning the opportunity to be baptized. Here, like today, like you, you, you came here dry and you're going home wet kind of thing, right? Um, so I know that even as I say this, some of you have reservations. Some of you have a lot of things going on in your brain. And, and so I want to answer some of those things because I can predict what some of those are. I mean, for some of you, you're sitting there and you're thinking, okay, it's not really that important. It's really not that important, right? You're like feeling convicted right now. It's not really that important. Really? Who's it not important to? Jesus, the one who commanded you to do it. I think it's probably kind of important to him since he's the one that said to do it, right? You're trying to minimize its importance by saying it's not important in the grand scheme of things. You're not the one that gets to measure. As Christ's followers, we follow, right? When he says we're supposed to do it, we're supposed to do it. You're like, Steve, yeah, but man, I've been a believer for like 22 years. I've been a believer for so long. Surely there's an expiration date on that thing. Really? Is there an expiration date on obedience? There really isn't, right? It doesn't matter if you've been a believer for 22 years or two minutes. If you became a believer this morning, praise God, let's dunk you, right? I mean, it's, the, the, it doesn't matter how long you've been a believer. This is still an issue of obedience. And this is where it gets a little bit tricky because I know for some of you, you have a history and you're like, yeah, but Steve, I was, I was sprinkled as a baby. Right? in the Catholic Church or the Methodist Church or wherever it was. I got sprinkled as a baby, and that was kind of a baptism, right? And, and so what about me? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm just going to tell you my, my conviction on this. Um, when I look at Scripture, what I see is a consistent pattern of people coming to faith and being baptized. When someone comes to faith, they are then baptized, and they're baptized through immersion because of the symbolic value in that. And so I believe, yes, um, you should, if you've come to faith, be dunked. Yeah, but doesn't that dishonor my parents? I don't think so. I mean, really, I really don't. Because if you think about it, why, why did um, why'd your parents have you sprinkled as an infant? What was their hope there? What they hoped was that you would become a follower of God. What they hoped is that you would walk in the fullness of his blessing, that you would believe the gospel, and, and that you would walk in a way that honors God. For me, I, I don't know any greater way to honor my parents' wish than to actually walk in obedience and be baptized. It doesn't dishonor their, their, their act. It actually honors the original intent. Yeah, but Steve, I, I don't know if I want to be a member here. I don't know if I want you to be a member here, right? That, that's not the point. This isn't about membership, right? You're not a member of the church trailhead. You're a member of the church universal. When you become a follower of Jesus, you're part of his body. 
I had a guy here that, that I had the privilege of, of baptizing a guy. It was his first Sunday here, and he was actually being deployed overseas in the military. He was a believer in Jesus, had never had the opportunity to be baptized, and had never been really confronted with his need to obey Jesus in that way. I baptized him, right? Was he a part of Trailhead Church? Yeah, in a universal sense, because he's a follower of Jesus, and he's part of the body of Christ, and he was a believer who hadn't been baptized. Did he become a member of this local church? No. No, he didn't, but, but it was his way of honoring um, Jesus by following in obedience, right? So let me ask you something. If you're a follower and you haven't been baptized, what's holding you back? What's holding you back? Are you concerned about what people are going to think? That's kind of the wrong question to be worried about, isn't it? We're not supposed to be men pleasers. We're supposed to be God pleasers. Right? So let's not worry about what people think. Let's worry about what God thinks, right? You're like, yeah, but see, this is too sudden. Don't I need to be trained? Not a whole lot of skill here, you guys. I'm just saying. Death and resurrection, right? And Jesus did it. <laughs> you don't have to do it. You're just celebrating what he's already done, right? Not a whole lot of skill. Yeah, but I need to pray about it, man. Really? When God tells us to do something, we don't need to pray about it. What are we going to do? Go ask him? Did you really mean it? Right? That's like a spiritualized way of disobeying. When God says do something, we don't need to ask God if we're supposed to do it, right? He kind of already told us, right? Yeah, but Steve, I need, I need to get my life together, man. You don't know what a mess I am. <sighs> we don't get baptized because our life is together. We don't get baptized because I've got it all together. This isn't my offering to God. Like, look at me. I finally got my life together. Let me give this great life to you. What we're saying is I don't have my life together. I am a mess. I am a sinner and I am broken in need of salvation. That's why Jesus had to die and that's why he was glad to die in my place. We, we don't get baptized because we have our lives together. We baptize because he's got his life together and he's giving it to us as a gift. It's grace. It's not about our offering to him. It's about what he's offering to us. We're celebrating the fact that we have new life because of him. Yeah, but Steve, I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't come dressed, man. It's cold out there. Got you covered. Um, we, got, we got clothes for guys and gals. We got shorts and shirts, towels. We're going to help you out. We even got the undergarments, right? I know, you, I know that's where your brain's going. We got you covered, right? We got, we got boxers and, and sports bras. We got it all. You know, we're, gonna, we, we're, we're good, okay? We're, we're going to equip you to do this. We've thought this through. Because here's the deal. We're just trying to take every artificial barrier out of the way. If you're a follower of Jesus and you have not obeyed him by being baptized, we're just trying to take every obstacle out of the way to give you the opportunity to join us. So if God is prompting you this morning, if you're a follower of Christ and you haven't been baptized, join us. Join us. It's a celebration, and I invite you to join with us.